Hello and welcome back to Over the Top, a great war podcast. How's everyone doing? Hoping everyone is in good health and hasn't gotten the coronavirus. This thing is crazy. NBA suspending season, hockey suspending season, soccer, college basketball, music events, and now a whole cities. This thing is out of control, folks. And not to mention the stock market. <laughs> Holy cow. Talk about depressing seeing that thing tank so quick. Ugh. It's the world we live in, folks. Did everyone enjoy the last series on the first Battle of the Ain? I really did. I was bummed bringing it to an end, but I had to. There's just so much that happened during the first Battle of the Ain that shaped the way this war was fought. And on top of that, just how destructive and brutal it would be. But I have something special for this episode. We have our first biographical episode. That's right. That's right. I know. I know. You're, you're too kind. Come on. Let's settle down. There's, there's plenty more to come. I went through my books, and it was really hard to choose at first. But then the light bulb came on. Let me do the first biography episode on Harry Patch. It only seemed fitting since he was the last surviving combat veteran from the trenches, and I stress the trenches. He died on the 25th of July, 2009. Now, Mr. Patch was not the last single surviving veteran, nor was he the last surviving combat veteran. He was the last surviving combat veteran who fought in the trenches. Kens, the key word again, trenches. Florence Green was the actual last surviving veteran. She served in the Woman's Royal Air Force and died on the 4th of February, 2012. Think about that. I mean, Apple was on, what, version 4 back in 2012 or something like that? She served during the Great War and lived long enough to see the iPhone. Although I'm pretty sure at that point she wasn't app scrolling or texting on the iPhone. The last actual surviving combat veteran was Claude Chaloux. He served in the Royal Navy and passed away on the 5th of May, 2011, one year after I met my wife. Holy moly. It's so amazing how long they lived. Has to be the dried fruit. Old people love eating dried prunes and stuff like that and wrapped candies. They also like keeping wrapped candies around the house. I should start doing that more. But before I get into the life of Harry Patch, let me tell you what this old chap is drinking for this episode. I'm drinking a proper gin and tonic with some Bombay Sapphire. And you know me. You know I can fancy up my drinks if needed. And what makes a gin and tonic proper? Well, not only do I think you have to use good gin, but you also have to use good quality tonic. Trust me, this will make the difference. One lime wedge... Squeezed over ice, 50 mils gin, 100 mils of tonic water poured over the bar spoon. Stir, don't shake, and enjoy. And that's how I make mine. Cheers, folks. Mm. Let me tell you, that is that is tasty during this coronavirus time. All right, let's get started. Harry Patch was born in the year 1898 in a small suburb village outside Bath called Combedown. 
This is a small suburb village on the outskirts of Bath in Somerset County. It's roughly around 90 miles west of London. And think about this. He was born only 17 years after the death of Billy the Kid, or the supposed death, depending on which story you believe. Jack the Ripper killed in 1888. The Eiffel Tower was built in 1887 for the World's Fair in Paris in 1889. And the Chicago World's Fair was held in 1893, also when America's first serial, serial killer, H.H. Holmes, started killing. You know, kind of random facts. But this was right before Harry was born, and he died in 2009. Yet those things, like the World's Fair and Billy the Kid, they seem so ancient. It's hard for me to grasp that he didn't die that long ago, yet he lived through so much. Anywho, Bath, England became a World Heritage Site in 1987, and the population today is around 90,000. The Romans built a city around these pools or baths from the valley's natural hot springs, turning the city into a spa. A Roman bath can still be seen today, still has water and all. It's part of the Roman Baths Museum. And you can still get a bath in Bath, just from a more modern facility. Harry was 109 when his memoir was published, so his memory was a tad bit hazy, and he didn't remember too much from his earlier childhood, just small bits and pieces. His mother's name was Elizabeth. She was born in 1857 in Moncton, Combe, and his father, William, was raised in a neighboring village called Claverton. His dad was six years younger than his mother. He had two brothers named George and William. His brother William joined the, joined the army before the Great War broke out, and of course, he would end up in France, which he served in Ypres between 1914 and 1915. He was badly wounded in Ypres, after which he returned to England, never returning to the trenches. Growing up as a kid, and even up through the war, the Patch family didn't have inter internal plumbing. They weren't poor by any means. That's just the way it was back then. Their bathroom was an outhouse in the garden. It just had a seat with a circular hole in the middle. Toilet paper was newspaper ripped into square pieces. Behind the toilet was a pit, which had to be emptied from time to time when a cart came to, well, we'll say haul the crap away, literally. He always assumed a farmer used it to fertilize the ground. That sounds fun. He told a story about when after the war he spent some time in Wales and a merchant he was living next door to stopped at a farmhouse due to poor weather to get some sleep. The merchant crept into what he thought was the toilet to do his business. After returning that summer to do the same rounds, conversation came up with the farmer, and he said he used the toilet and pointed to what he thought was the toilet, but really was a pantry. The farmer then yelled to his wife, You were right, honey. That's what spoiled the Christmas pudding. <laughs> It wasn't until after the war when the Bath Council put in modern plumbing, which people then started getting toilets. Growing up in an era with no toilet, only being able to bathe once a week, man, that's the Wild West in my book. That's rough living. Imagine being in a crowded pub in the summer. Let's say you meet someone, you know, you want to get to know a little better, wondering if they had their weekly bath. That's rough. I mean, the first thing I do when traveling or I'm visiting in a new place is to check on the toilet situation. Look, I've dumped in the woods plenty of times, 
And I don't mind it for a short period of time or if I'm forced to, but that's not my full-time toilet. I do look forward to going home to my porcelain porcelain seat. But yeah, actually, this is going off topic. So let's get back to Harry's life. In 1912, the first plane made its way to Combe Down, giving a demonstration on flight. This was the first time anyone from the town had seen an airplane. People even got the opportunity to take a half-hour flight for a hefty price. Around the same time, Harry saw his first automobile, owned by songwriter and poet Frederick Weatherly. He wrote the famous lyrics to Danny Boy. Oh, Danny Boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling. Harry believed he grew up in a city that in many ways was cut off from the outside world. People who live in small villages or smaller cities today will often shut themselves off or not really care what's going on in the bigger world. He was 14 years old when the Titanic sank, and until that time, didn't even know what the Titanic even was. Patch was 16 years old when the world went mad in August of 1914, and admittingly said while others ran to join up and paraded around the streets, he didn't exactly welcome the war. He much rather would have continued on with his plumber's apprenticeship and then go pick up a gun. He supposed the people didn't know what to expect from the war, and the long list of casualties were still some time away. But nonetheless, it came, and took boys from Somerset too. Patrick called a few fellows he personally knew from home. Reginald Whitaker came from a rough family, always known to be fighting and arguing. Frederick Garrish. Albert Kellaway, a married man and neighbor to the Whitakers, and Eric Barrow, who lied about his age, who was at that time the same age as Patch, only 18 years old when he died on the Somme in 1916. Soon after the British arrived in France, news from the war started making its way back home. They heard about the Battle of Mons and the Great Retreat and how a small army held back the Germans near Paris. Letters began to arrive from Harry's brother, William, who was currently on the front. He told of a small town in Belgium called Ypres, which at that time meant nothing to Harry. At this time, the Tommies along with William were hard at work laying wire, repairing frontline trenches, digging more communication trenches, and various other jobs. His brother served in some of the largest battles like New Chapelle and Lou. When October of 1916 rolled around, Harry couldn't avoid the war. He had no choice. Everyone had a legal duty to serve by the national registration. So when he turned 18, he was off. Now, I have to admit, um, I'm kind of for mandatory service. This isn't political, so please don't misinterpret this as a political statement. I just feel that so many kids after high school are lost. I myself was one of those kids. People also want a lot of free stuff from the government. Well, my thoughts are, go serve, go find yourself, and then go and reap the benefits you earn. You don't have to go into combat arms. There's all sorts of jobs for everyone. Get a paycheck while you're getting some good job training and prepare yourself for the real yet harsh world. Two years mandatory service, I don't think that would hurt. Plus, most kids don't even have a clue what they want to do with their lives until they're past 20 years old. That's all I'm saying. 
Harry remembered when he was at the end of his training in 1917 when he received news about the death of his cousin Fred. He was killed fighting in Arras. His body was never found. He remembered becoming very sad as the war was hitting closer to home. Several weeks later, he would be on the Western Front himself. It was daylight when he arrived in the port city of Boulogne-Semier. I hope I said that right. Guns could be heard in the distance, and the sight of soldiers aroused no interest to the locals anymore. He was assigned to the Duke of Cornwall's light infantry on a Lewis machine gun team. They were immediately ordered up to the frontline trenches in Ypres, Belgium. He remembered passing by the ruins of the shelled town. Cloth Hall, he said, was a pile of rubble. This was his first time in the trenches, and it coincided with his 19th birthday. What a way to spend your 19th birthday. He was nervous. All the men had seen too much frontline combat. He didn't want to expose himself as being nervous. To him, it was most important the men knew he was reliable. Because Ypres was low-lying and the water table high, it was extremely wet. Aside from keeping your feet dry, the next most important thing to keep dry was the gun. He said the Lewis gun was our job. Lose the gun, and we lost the point of being there. So our main concern was to make sure the gun was clean, oiled, and ready for immediate use. Patch served in Ypres during the summer months of June through September. He recalls the misery and couldn't imagine how much more miserable it would have been in the winter. Despite all the rain, there was little fresh water on the front line. Everything needed had to be carried up. Ration parties would bring water in petrol cans, which were rarely washed out. Washing was almost impossible. He recalled from the time he landed in France in June to September, he was never able to take a bath. and never had clean clothes. Lice, ringworm, fungus. Just imagine what could happen to a body that hasn't bathed in three months, and that's exactly what they were living with. There was no sanitation at all, and the place stunk like hell. The latrine was basically anywhere you could find a little recess in the ground, maybe a shell hole or a pit or something of the sort. With the sanitation conditions so bad and unbathed soldiers, it shouldn't come as a shock that VD, not only for troops but civilians, was at a high. Do the math. Patch's unit was sent to Flanders Fields for the Third Battle of Ypres, better known as the Battle of Passchendaele. The battle was launched on the 31st of July, 1917. His, along with other machine gun teams, were to play a major part in supporting the advancement of the British infantry by laying down heavy fire. Patrick called as the men ready themselves to move out, saying, quote, Before we went forward, all the men left their packs to be taken back by our transport to storage. We wouldn't see these again for the next few days. Some of the lads wrote home, and I may have done too. I know I had made out my will. We understood what was going to happen in the morning, and we had all those hours to sit down and think about it. So we tried to keep ourselves busy. We were issued with two days rations in order to see that our water bottles were full. Extra kit was issued to the men, shovels and more bombs that sort of thing we were told we were going over the top and what the objective was and that we were not to go beyond that we mustn't go any further 
I'm told we attacked on the 16th of August, but the date doesn't mean much to me. I know it was some six weeks before I was wounded, so I suppose the middle of August is about right. I remember the names. Pilkham Ridge was one, and the other was Langemark. End quote. You should Google images of the Third Battle of Ypres, Passchendaele, or Langemark, 1917. It's all the same. The place looks like an apocalyptic wasteland. The duckboards running paths through the muddy, drenched shell holes, no trees in sight on the front lines, just ripped apart stubs, and shell craters everywhere. It's unbelievable. For the first two weeks of the battle, both sides expended an enormous amount of artillery shells. It's estimated over 4 million shells were fired off. The barrages crept forward just past the advancing infantry to eliminate any enemies in the open. He went on to describe, saying, quote, Our guns' opening bombardment had begun with an almighty clap of thunder. You can't describe the noise. You can't, but it was enough to take your breath away. It was ferocious, and much of it was dropping not that far ahead of us, and the barrage crept forward with the infantry behind. On the far side of the flooded stream, we assembled. There was a look of apprehension in everyone's eyes, and horror in a few. End quote. During the initial fighting, the German defense seemed confused due to the fact that already exhausted defenders at Lengemark were in process of being relieved by fresh troops. Soon, prisoners Around 150 of them began to turn themselves over to the Brits. The first objective was taken at 5.40 a.m., less than an hour after the attack commenced. At 5.45, the Duke of Cornwall's light infantry was ordered forward to the German line. As they did, they began to encounter the dead and the wounded. Patch said, quote, It was absolutely sickening to see your own dead and wounded, some calling for stretcher bears. Others were semi-conscious and beyond all help, and the German wounded laying about two, and you couldn't stop to help them. I saw one German. I should think he'd been dead some time. A shell had hit him, and all his side and back were ripped up, and his stomach was out on the floor. A horrible sight. Others were blown to pieces. It wasn't a case of seeing them with a nice bullet hole. Far from it. I was only 19 years old. I felt sick. We came across a lad from A Company. He was ripped open from his shoulder to his waist by shrapnel and lying in a pool of blood. When we got to him, he looked at us and said, shoot me. He was beyond all human help. And before we could draw a revolver, he was dead. And the final word he uttered was mother. I was with him in his last seconds of his life. It wasn't a cry of despair. It was a cry of surprise and joy. I'm positive that when he left this world, wherever he went, his mother was there. And from that day, I've always remembered that cry, and that death is not the end. End quote. By the time the Duke of Cornwall's light infantry reached the German first line of trenches, they were clear, as was the second. However, as they came to the communication line of the trench, they encountered the Germans. Hand-to-hand -hand combat ensued. A German, who must have been out of ammo, rushed Patch and his gun team with his bayonet. Harry pulled out his revolver and shot him in the shoulder. The German dropped his rifle with bayonet but kept coming. Patch had just a couple seconds to make a decision. 
so he shot the man in the leg, sparing his life. The Cornishman who died crying mother kept ringing in Harry's ear. And that's why he didn't kill the man. That's why he spared him his life. The DCLI took their objective. The trenches were in a mess, stick grenades lying about everywhere. But the Tommies didn't dare take any in fear that they might be booby-trapped. Rotting bodies were being found in the trench dugouts. They would never be buried properly. Mud was up to their knees, the gluey, sticky kind of mud with decaying bodies and rats the size of small cats feasting on the dead. As the night approached and the firing calmed, all that could be heard aside from distant artillery was the moans from the wounded, crying for help in both languages. I can only imagine one of the hardest parts about this war and one of the most haunting for those who survived was hearing the endless voices of cries for help, not being able to do anything about it, the unknown if that person lived or died. I couldn't imagine the men who survived the war, then returned to these same areas many years later. Just how haunting that must have been. I don't think there ever was closure. How could there be? The 22nd of September 1917 was a day that changed Harry's life forever. Actually, let me take one step back and tell you about brotherhood. The single greatest thing about the military, in my opinion, was the brotherhood and the pals you gain. For Harry and his gun team, they shared personal stories, they knew all about each other's families, relationship status, favorite foods, what they craved, what was their favorite book, what they missed back home, and even what they didn't miss. Harry and his gun team were in Ypres, probably one of the worst places for the British Army during the Great War. They got close, real close. A real brotherhood was formed. September 22nd was the day Harry was badly injured and lost his gun team, lost his pals. But I'd rather tell it through Harry's words. He said, quote, We were returning from the line, going back into reserve. It was a quiet night with little shell fire at all, if any, that I can recall. We walked in single file about 10 feet apart to lessen the chance of the team being hit. It was always important to stick to the communication trenches where you could. But if there weren't any, then you just went over the top in the open and took a chance. We'd stop briefly as Bob was attending to the call of nature in a slight traverse, causing us to bunch up a little as we waited. Heavy shells make a whoomp sound, but the light shells, the whiz bangs, they used to come over us so quickly with a zoop bang and a flash, and I guess it was a whiz bang that got us. The only thing I saw was a flash. I can't recall any noise at all, but I certainly felt the concussion of the shell bursting because I was taken off my feet and thrown to the ground. For a couple minutes, I couldn't move. The explosion seemed to paralyze the nervous system, and I lay there, conscious but incapable of anything. Two or three minutes later, movement gradually returned. I didn't even know I was hit at first, but a growing pain told me otherwise. I looked down and saw my tunic was torn away, as there was blood oozing out from the area of my stomach. Under the corner of my tunic was a field dressing, and I applied it to my wound. After that, I must have passed out. Stretcher bears came, and I was picked up. I don't recall anything else until I found myself in a tenant encampment, a casually clearing station 
where there were nurses and doctors, end quote. Patch's wound to the stomach was serious. There was shrapnel embedded in his gut. The doctor came and told him they were out of anesthetic and asked if he still wanted to have the shrapnel removed. Harry, of course, said yes and suffered through terrible pain to have it removed. He didn't know what happened to the others on his team until he received a letter from Bob when he returned back to England. The rest of his team was killed. In fact, they were all blown to pieces. The news was of course devastating to Harry. His reaction was terrible. He had instantly lost a part of his life, his pals. The brotherhood was ripped away from him by that one single shell. While recovering back in England, he met Ada, his first wife. They married after the war. Ada was the love of his life. He never returned to the fighting trenches. The war ended shortly after he fully recovered. Patch returned home to Bath. He started working again and married Ada in 1919. Patch was in his 40s when Hitler declared war and decided to expand his Nazi territory. He found it odd that it took them so long to push into France because in the First World War, they were there in a matter of weeks. He was too old for military service, so he volunteered for the Auxiliary Fire Service. He remembers Bath and Combidown being bombed in air raids, but said the German pilots overall failed to hit their targets. He also remembers the Americans coming in mass before heading over on D-Day. Victory in Europe Day soon followed. He then turned 47. He retired at the age of 65 in 1963, and for the next decade, he and Ada lived quietly in Yeovil. Then in 1976, she suffered a massive stroke and passed away. Harry would actually marry two more times. The late 70s and 80s were rather rough on Harry. He ended up outliving both his sons. One died from liver disease and the other from cancer. You can't live that long of a life and think it's all smooth sailing. Chances are, there's going to be some rough patches. He put the war behind him. Didn't even talk about it with his first wife and kids. As a lot of surviving veterans did. In fact, Harry didn't speak about it to anyone up until he co-wrote his memoir, The Last Fighting Tommy. Harry claims you don't start living until you're 100. That's when the spotlight starts shining on you. I'm really glad I started the first biography episode with Harry Patch. As they all are equally respected, I felt it was appropriate to start with the last surviving soldier who fought in the trenches. Some of the worst trenches of the war had to offer. I hope I've inspired you to go out and get his book. There's so much more in detail to his life. And I think if you've enjoyed this episode, you'll really enjoy his book. There's, uh, there's something about him, him just passing away in 2009 that I find so intriguing. 2009 was not that long ago. Some of the last surviving veterans of the First World War died 2009, 2011. That's, that's incredible. Thank you all for your continued support for the show. And I can't say this enough, so I'm just going to keep saying it. You fans are the best. If you're on social media, please follow the show on Instagram at OTTGW Podcast and on my Facebook page. You can email the show at OTTGWPodcast at gmail.com. It would be much appreciated if you could leave me a review on whichever platform you listen to the show on. Everyone, take your vitamin C 
stay away from the news. Let's put this coronavirus business behind us and get 2020 back to a happier place. Until the next episode, take care, everyone. I was 18, 18 and a half, I was called up. I saw two battlefields, one at Passchendaele and one at uh, Pilkham. I should never forget it as long as I live. The officer was going down the trench. Anybody who didn't go in was shot on sight for cowardice. We went over and we crawled. If you stood up, you were dead. And I came across a Cornishman. He was ripped from his shoulder to his stomach with shrapnel. His inside was out on the ground in a pool of blood. He said, shoot me. Before we could draw a revolver to shoot him, he was beyond all human aid. He died. In 30 seconds he died, and he just said one word, mother, and that haunted me all my life.